Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there are some things in life that just don't mix. The classic example is uh, oil and water. If you pour some, say, olive oil into a glass that's half full with water, what happens? Well, the oil just sits on top of the water. There's a perfect division between them. They don't mix. There are also some things that you could potentially mix, but probably shouldn't. Take food, for example. You might like ketchup, you might like ice cream, but together just doesn't work. There are also some things that are dangerous to mix. For example, you should never mix together vinegar and bleach. Why is that? Well, doing so will release toxic chlorine vapors, potentially harming your lungs. So there's all these things that we just don't mix together and shouldn't. Well, the same is true of our faith. There are some things we should never combine or try to combine with our faith. And our text from James 2 gives us a clear example. Listen to verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Or he says, hold the faith without any partiality. And the partiality he's describing here is a type of favoritism towards certain people based on worldly values, worldly standards. He's warning us against judging based on external things like money, Uh, popularity, and the like. As Christians in the church, we cannot treat people in different ways according to their outward appearance or their social standing. Just doesn't work for us as Christians. That sort of behavior is simply incompatible with the Christian faith. It does not mix. And the Holy Spirit through James will teach us the reasons for this in our text. So that brings us to the sermon theme this morning, which is as follows. Don't combine your faith with worldly favoritism. We'll see three reasons for this. First of all, because this favoritism contrasts with God's own character. Secondly, because this favoritism turns us into transgressors. And finally, because this favoritism is contrary to the law of liberty. So again, the main command for this passage is found right at the beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And very literally, it says we are, we are not to receive someone according to their face, according to their outward appearance. And the text right away then gives a clear example of the sort of thing he's talking about. It says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, while you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In the example whether real or imaginary, 
Christians are giving preferential treatment to the rich man precisely because he is obviously rich. This guy looks like a somebody, and so we're going to treat him like a somebody. On the flip side, the poor man is obviously poor, and so as a result, they give him dishonorable treatment. This guy looks like a nobody, and so we're going to treat him like a nobody. And so in this example that our text gives, the Christians are differentiating between people based on outward appearance and worldly standards. Things like social status and money are swaying how they treat them. This is a constant temptation for God's people. Now, this particular example of our text, example of a rich man versus a poor man, might not be our particular temptation. In fact, I would say it probably isn't. We are used to seeing rich people. I'm sure there's many people here with gold rings on their finger this morning. Someone comes into our church uh, dressed in lots of bling. We might even think they're dressed funny. Now, what's the particular temptation in our culture? I would suggest to you that it's fame. Here's a test for you. Imagine that one Sunday, our church was visited by some members of the Winnipeg Jets. Do you think people would pay special attention to them? I'm guessing that could easily happen. Maybe some of you are already thinking to yourself, ooh, that would be exciting. You can imagine someone elbowing their neighbor in the pew and whispering, look, you see who that is? It's Mark Shifley. Or maybe a parent says to their child right after the service, quick, come over here. Let's go get Josh Morrissey's autograph. Mr. Morrissey, can you please sign my liturgy sheet? Or maybe on Monday you might talk about it with your coworker. You know who came to my church on Sunday? Connor Hellebuck. Imagine that. Imagine on that same Sunday, a man comes into our church who looks homeless or just very plain. Will they be treated differently? Is anyone going to get his autograph after church? Probably not. We might be t- why might we be tempted to treat these people differently? Well, it could be that something in us believes the world's message that things like money and fame or good looks make a person great. Right? We hear that message all the time. It's easy for that to soak into our hearts too. And in this example in our text, Christians might treat the rich man this way because they think they have something to gain by it. At this time, the church in Jerusalem probably, and the, and the Christians that James is writing to, they were probably poor. Maybe the church is struggling financially with lots of poor people too. If we treat the rich man like this, maybe he can pay our bills. 
Perhaps famous people can act like a status symbol for the church. You can tell your neighbor, well, so-and-so from the Winnipeg Jets, they, they go to my church. At bottom, it could be just our sinful hearts, that we've got our priorities and our values all wrong and all mixed up. See, God calls us away from these sorts of evil thoughts and, and this worldly favoritism. And the first main reason for this is that this sort of partiality goes against God's own character. Consider this. How is, how is Jesus Christ described in verse 1? He's called the Lord of glory. He's the eternal Son of God. All-powerful, almighty. His glory far surpasses the glory of man. This rich man in our text might have a gold ring and some fancy clothes, but that's nothing compared to our Lord Jesus Christ, who now dwells in inapproachable light. When the Apostle John had a vision of the glorified Christ in Revelation, he falls down at his feet, it says, as though he were dead. And it was an instant, involuntary reaction from being in the presence of the Lord of glory. You see, it's Jesus' glory that should captivate our hearts. And yet so often we're held captive by the petty glory of humans, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Our text shows another way that this worldly favoritism contrasts with the character of God. God himself isn't swayed by human glory. That's not what moves him to show favor to someone. This is how verse 5 puts it. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Now, we should not get these words wrong. It's not that God despises rich people because they have riches. It's not that God loves a poor man because he is poor. But as 1 Corinthians 1 puts it, God often chooses the weak things and the despised people and the lowly ones so that no one may boast before him. His love for them and choosing of them makes it crystal clear that there was nothing in them that, God, that caused God to act in love. It's not like he said, oh, that person, they have lots of riches. I'm going to set my love on that person. No. So often he chooses the weak things because they, they could give nothing back to God, but God still chose them anyways. Showing that it originates in God himself, in his love, in his compassion. And so often the Bible describes God as the God who has compassion on the weak, the poor, the downcast, those who can't help themselves. Consider only these words from Exodus 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And why? If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. That's how much God has his eye on the poor and the downcast, the afflicted. Added to all this, 
Look at what our text further says about cozying up to people based on these worldly standards. They wanted to welcome and honor the rich. He says, are not the rich ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You see, if we, as church, try to pander to the rich and famous, what's going to happen? It's going to backfire badly. Oh, you won't accept our views on, say, sexuality? Well, let's see what the courts have to say about that. Can happen. Because of all these things, God calls us to take on the same perspective that he does. The same perspective he describes in 1 Samuel 16, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That brings us to our second point. Now in verse 8, our text switches gears. Gives another reason why we are not to show this sort of worldly favoritism. The reason given here is doing so causes us to transgress God's law. Listen to verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Why does he describe it uh, this way? Why does our text describe it this way? Well, perhaps the people thought... that they would be showing love to the rich man by treating him in this honorable way. Isn't it a loving thing to do this for him, to show him uh, this respect? And sure, by itself, it could be. But the problem is they're doing it from a position of partiality, favoring this rich man over against the poor man based on worldly values. And their treatment of the rich man stands in stark contrast to their treatment of the poor man. They're not loving this poor man like they love themselves. Uh, you, you stand over there or, or sit at my feet. They've treated him with contempt. They've humiliated him. So they have not loved their neighbor as themselves. This makes them transgressors of God's law, transgressing the royal law. See, when it comes to the perfect standards of God's law, partial obedience is still disobedience. Think of how King Saul, when he was think about King Saul when he was told to destroy the Amalekites in 1 Samuel. He obeyed quite a lot of the command, didn't he? But he kept some of the best animals alive. Kept King Agag alive against God's will. Samuel told him outright, you did, not, you did not obey the voice of the Lord. And the next few verses of our text show us something of this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Well, this is the logic here. You can't pick and choose which commandments you want to obey. 
commandments are given to us by one God. And so transgressing any commandment is doing what God tells us not to do. That's what makes it sin. It goes against God's word, God's will, and God's standard, his law. So you can't say, well, I've shown love to one person, so it's okay if I show contempt to this other person. It doesn't work that way. And if you're going to really love your neighbor as yourself, that includes all your neighbors, not just the ones that's, that are easy to love. Even this poor destitute man who's dressed in disgustingly filthy clothes. Besides this, so much of, of God's law and his will unfolded in scriptures in the Old Testament was about showing compassion for the weak and the poor, the afflicted, those who couldn't help themselves, the fatherless and the widow. It's not about not oppressing the weak. So much of it was against showing this sort of worldly favoritism for your own gain. Just look at our reading from Leviticus 19. When Israel harvested its crops or picked the grapes from their vines, they weren't supposed to harvest their fields bare or pick their vines completely clean. They were to leave some for the poor, for the sojourner. And they were not to oppress their neighbor or rob him, not to hold back wages given that were supposed to go to the worker, not allowed to curse the deaf, put a stumbling block before the, the blind. And in these ways, they would show love and compassion to the weak and the helpless. And when they went to court, they had to maintain justice for all. Right? It would be tempting and easy to show favoritism to the rich in order to gain financially from them. The Lord strictly forbade that. But neither were they to make the opposite mistake of favoring the poor people, it says. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be, in, shall not be partial to the poor either, or defer to the great. But in righteous, righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. We could cite many examples from the Old Testament law. And then when Israel was settled in the land, so often the people and the kings failed in this regard. Time and again, the, the Lord sent prophets to convict them of their sin. Just one example, listen to Jeremiah 22. Hear the word of the Lord, O King of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. And so we see here from our text in James 2 that God has these same desires for his new covenant people today, Christians, the church. So we should reflect. Do you show contempt, maybe, for the weak, the poor, or the helpless? Do you maybe take advantage of them for your own gain? Do you care about justice for those who cannot gain justice on their own? Do you show favoritism or preferential treatment to somebody in this church 
because of something like looks or money or popularity, social standing. It goes against God's law and his will. It hasn't changed. He calls us to examine our lives and repent where we have fallen short. That brings us to our last point. Our text ends with the following exhortation. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, it's true that these words here, this last part of our text, has caused interpreters some some headaches. What exactly do these words mean? How do they relate to uh, what has just come before in this text. Now, verses 10 and 11, what comes just before it, what we've looked at in point two, um, have shown us the strict requirements of God's law. Partial obedience is not going to cut it when it comes to God's perfect standards. If you keep the whole law but stumble at one point, you're guilty of all of it. You have disobeyed the lawgiver. So that makes you guilty of sin. Now, given those words right before the end of our text, or right before this last part of our text, we might at first think that when he says right afterwards in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, that he's saying, hey, you'd better pull your socks up. Try extra hard and do better if you want to make it. But this understanding doesn't make sense of what he says next in verse 13. For judgment is is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And so this means, when verse 12 says, so speak and so act as those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty, it's speaking about the law given in light of God's mercy. Let me explain. Verses 10 and 11 show us that if we're going to make it with God based on our own performance, then we're in trouble. None of us are going to make it. It says, whoever has kept the entire law but stumbles at one point, he's guilty of all of it. All of it. Well, guess what? That's all of us. That's you and me. None of us are going to stand before God on the basis of this requirement. That's because none of us have shown perfect love for God or neighbor. And so that means that we all stand in need of God's great mercy. And this is what God has given in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' death on the cross, God has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse which states, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. By ourselves, we stand underneath that curse. Because we haven't done all things written in the book of the law. We haven't done them all. But Christ came. He took that curse upon himself so we would receive the mercy of God. And by his death and resurrection, Christ has freed us from the law's condemning power. And at the same time, it's this saving work of Christ that frees us from slavery to sin, gives us liberty. 
And God calls us now to obey him in light of this freedom-giving, merciful salvation in Jesus Christ. That's something I mentioned right before the reading of the law this morning. We read the ten, the ten words of the covenant every, morning, uh, every Sunday. We hear that first part. I'm the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've given you liberty. I've given you freedom. I've shown you mercy. God has saved his people. And in that light, he calls us to obey him. It's the same thing for us in Jesus Christ. We rest in the mercy of God, and in that light, we now offer our obedience to God. And how does this affect how we speak and act? As those who have received such wonderful mercy from God, we likewise show mercy to others. And this includes how we treat the poor person who might come into the church. The down-and-out person who's part of the church. Acting with mercy towards others shows that we have understood God's own mercy towards us in Jesus Christ. One commentator put it well when he wrote the following, summarizing this section of our text. God's gracious acceptance of us does not end our obligation to obey him. Rather, it sets that obedience on a new footing. For the will of God now confronts us as a law of liberty, an obligation we discharge with joy because we stand both forgiven and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yes, even Christians must undergo judgment. But our judgment will take place before Christ who has already offered us freedom through his grace and mercy. And this in turn should lead us to help, should lead us to help liberate rather than oppress others. This is how we are to act as Christians. And if in the church we're trying to build a club of the rich and famous, the good-looking and the popular, we've got it all wrong. That's not what the church is about. That's certainly not where the gospel of Jesus Christ leads us either. God has saved us by his mercy. Now he calls us to likewise to show mercy. That means no worldly favoritism either. So it doesn't really matter at all who walks through the doors of our church. The gospel empowers us to treat them all the same. We are all objects of mercy, and we want everyone, everyone who comes through these doors to experience and rejoice in that same mercy of God. If the rich and famous come through those doors and you want to greet them, that's great. Do it. Go, indeed, go out of your way to greet them and welcome them, but not because they're rich and famous. And so, yes, if if the Winnipeg Jets come here some Sunday, are you supposed to ignore them? No. But don't greet them because they're the Winnipeg Jets. Because you want them to experience the same mercy of God that we have received. We give everyone the same treatment as any person 
We might come into church because at the end of the day, we all stand in need of God's grace. Not one of us is, one of us is more deserving of it than another. Amen.